All right, thanks. Is this on? Test, check. Okay. Gosh, it's good to be back. We were, um, as Pete said, we did uh, Summer Splash first in 2004, and as we were leaving Quadna with our boys, um, the first thing they asked me, well, they had asked me all week, but the first thing they said, when are we, are we going back next year? I said, we will go back as soon as they invite us. And after about five years of that, my boys kind of gave up hope. And, um, and then we did a winter weekend, and then uh, we were just, we were so excited to come back this year. Uh, in fact, last night, my son and I, Grace and I, were a 13-year-old, and we were walking around the property, and he said, I mean, he already, we didn't even started yet, and he's already like, let's come back. Dad, what, how often do they invite you to come back? <laughs> <laughs> this is what I told him. I said, here's how it works. Whenever Pete can't find another speaker. <clears throat> so last week, Pete calls and says, hey, um, we've been thinking for literally hours and would love to have you come speak. And I said, gosh, I'd... no, I remember when he, when he sent me the email, I thought, uh, the first line, we'd love to have you come back to Summer Splash this year. And my, my first thought was, I don't care what the dates are, we'll make it work. Because our family loves this, I love this, um, and it's just been a blast. Uh, my wife, Karen, is somewhere in the room, hiding. Where's Karen? Oh, she's back in the back. Um, and uh, we have two boys, um, Grayson, uh, who is 13, and Tyler, who is 19. Tyler is a KC here. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about our story tonight, um, but just you, it'll be fun to, for you to get to see them and hear a little bit more about our story. Um, I was just thinking when I was sitting out there, uh, earlier this week we were, having, we were just had a family just sitting around the dinner table, and after dinner we were sitting there talking, and, um, and my youngest, Grayson, said, asked his older brother what was his favorite Bible verse and started that, and so then Grayson says to me, Dad, what's your favorite Bible verse? And I've never been one that had like a favorite, you know. So I, I just said, uh, Genesis 27, 11. And he said, what's that? I said, my brother Esau is a hairy man, but I am a smooth man. <laughs> and he gives me this look. And behind him, I see my older son just about losing it. I see, for some of you, that could be a life verse, but I won't go there, okay. <laughs> so, it's been an interesting journey to get here. Um, for the past several weeks, I really have been wrestling with, what, well, oh, the other reason, I told my son after the, when he said, why, you know, why don't they invite you back every year? Because I said, I don't have that many talks. So, I, um, but I was trying to think of, and praying about what, you know, what we would kind of processed through together this week, and, and it, I had a lot of ideas spinning around up there, but I had, I, like maybe never before, this unsettledness about it, and then about last week, and when I was still putting some ideas together, um, some things, just praying about it, some things kind of gelled, and, but there was still a little bit of unsettledness, and then I talked to Pete on the phone, and we talked it through, and as I talked it through, it made more sense to me, and then Pete said, yeah, that would be great. So, I, you know, there's a part, there's a wrestling match that I come through to get to where we are, what, the stuff that I want to process through, but I think that maybe through that, God is up to something, and it could be um, 
I'm hopeful, a, a really great week for us. For those of you that are here as couples, I think there'll be stuff that we'll talk about that will be applicable to our lives, to our individual faith, to our marriages, to our parenting, um, all kinds of things. Uh, one of the things that I remember most about the stories of Jesus was, you know, he, he took and those 12 guys, the disciples, and he lived for them, with them for three years. They did everything together for three years. And yet in the midst of doing everything together, there were times that Jesus took them away. And I remember uh, and in one version it said there was a time when he took uh, the disciples away onto a hillside. And, and the, one of the translations says, literally it says, he took them away that he might be with them. That was the purpose. You know, Jesus had purpose in everything that he did, and yet there was times when he would get away. And I'm thinking, to be with them, well, he was with them all the time. Why would he need to take them away that he might be with them? And he recognized there was something about getting away, getting away from the crowds, getting away from everything else that makes up your life back home. God honors when we get away. And for us individually, but our, for our marriages and our families, um, I think there is something very biblical and spiritual about getting away. And so I hope that this is, these next four days are that for you. Um, and I think that if that's our approach, I think God will meet us there. Well, as, we, uh, as I was thinking through what we're going to talk about, one of the things that I realized, it seemed, again, it seemed a little disjointed until I realized that there was kind of a common thread through everything that we'll cover and it's this, life is really hard. And life, often we live with a lot of disappointments and life doesn't go the way we had hoped it would go. Um, those of you that are children of the 70s like I am, there was that you know, M. Scott Peck book, The Road Less Traveled, and the first three words of the entire book, life is difficult. That was it. And then the whole book was, and I kind of went, you know, I think... We, even though a lot of, there's a lot of aspects in our life that are just great and wonderful and blessed and we're thankful and thrilled, it, for all of us, there are hopes and dreams. Um, it just doesn't go the way we had planned and hoped. And there seems to be that kind of common thread. So what I want to do this morning to kind of just lay the groundwork for where we're going to go the next few days is to go back and talk about, okay, if life, if, if God wants the most for us, and that's what he says, John 10 says, Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. God's greatest desire is that you and I would get the most out of our one and only life that we possibly could. And if that's true, if God designed you and created you and put you in this world that you could get the most out of it possible, why is it that we live with the struggles that we live with? And so what I want to do is just kind of go back and look at how was life intended to be? How was it meant to be when God first made it? And then what happened? And then how do we, uh, what are the implications for that for us now and in our relationships and in our life? Um, so I want to go back to the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. And it, we'll look at the, uh, the first few chapters of Genesis, and it's familiar to probably all of you or most of you. If you want to follow along in your Bible, you can, but you don't need to. You can go back maybe and read this later. Uh, but I want to look at the creation story briefly, but then at how God intended it. When we look at uh, what life was like before the fall, before sin and brokenness entered the picture, when we look at life in the Garden of Eden, we actually get a picture of how God intended life to be for you and I. And so... 
I want to start there. Um, and I may or may not, I'm not going to draw, don't worry. I may write a few things here and there. The first thing that we see when we go back and look at, at Genesis 1 is we see um, what life was like before the fall, and we see the creation story. The first thing we realize is that God already existed. So the answer to your kid's question, well, who made God? Well, he already existed. In fact, that's all summed up in the first sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, there was a beginning. There was a time when all of this started, and before that was nothing, and then it started. And so here was the beginning, but it says, in the beginning, God. So there was a beginning, but God was already there. And so God has already existed. But the interesting thing is that God exists in the Trinity, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We learned that, we remember that in Sunday school. This three completely individual expressions of who God is, three, not, not eat, it doesn't morph, God doesn't go from being the Father to being the Son to being the Holy Spirit, and now he's the Holy Spirit, but now he's the Son, and now he's the Father. That three completely separate individuals that are each one completely and holy and fully God, and yet together they make one, form one God, this concept that you and I just literally don't have the brain capacity to understand. We just have to accept it. He's three, and yet he's one. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more tomorrow night about how, what the implications are uh, of that for us. But what that says for us today is that, when, that not only did God exist in the very beginning, he existed in the Trinity in the beginning, and there's evidence of that in the Bible. We won't go into that. But he existed in community. God existed in perfect relationship with himself. Okay? Um, and he, it, it, the Bible says he's whole and he's perfect and he's holy and he needs absolutely nothing. And so he has everything that he possibly needs before creation. So then the question is, why did he create a thing? Why are you here? You ever wondered that? Why are you here? Not why are you here, you know, this week, but why are you here here? Because why did God make you? He, I don't know if I need to break this to you. He doesn't need you. He's doing just fine on his own. So he, doesn't, he didn't make you because somehow you make his life better. He, the Bible says he made us for this reason. God is, every fiber of his being is love. That phrase, God is love. And there's something about relationship and there's something about love that you get a fuller expression of it when you share it. And God made you for one reason, and that was that he might have a place to share his love, that he might have a place to extend the relationship that exists here, the community that exists here, and invite you into that. You're here for one reason, and that's to be in community and to be in relationship with God. Everything else in our life kind of streams from that, okay? Then the Bible says this about how we were made. It says that God created us, John 120, or Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man, notice he talks in the plural, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that, you are, that, we, are, that we look like God, because God doesn't have an appearance. He, he doesn't exist in the physical. So you and I, there's something about you and I that more closely resembles God than anything else in all of his creation, Okay? And 
what that is, is the capacity for relationships. We are the only animals in the animal kingdom that have the capacity for community and the capacity for relationships the way God has capacity for relationships. Okay, Relationship, God has given you and I, what it means to be made in his image, God has given you and I the ability to be in relationship with him, which nothing else in his creation has that potential, and relationship with each other. And so you and I were created by God in his image for relationship. The other thing, the other aspect of that, it says in the very next verse, it says, and God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. That's all one sentence. So when it talks about what does it mean to be created in the image of God, it says in the image of God, he made them male and female. Okay? There's something about maleness and femaleness together that, that is the expression of the image of God. And we'll talk a lot more about that tomorrow night. Okay? But, what, but it doesn't mean that God, when God made man in his image, that it means he made us men or made males in his image because God is without gender. Um, and so uh, there's, it's even interesting that he made um, us exactly equally. Um, and he created us differently. You know, I love the story. He, made, he created Adam out of the dust of the ground. Remember that? He created it, and he molded it together, and then he breathed life into Adam, but not Eve. He made Adam first, and then he made Eve. Now, somebody said the reason God didn't make Eve the same way is that if man, if Adam had seen God make Eve out of dirt, it would have perpetuated some of man's own misconceptions about women. But instead, God took a rib out of Adam and made Eve out of that. The same. The, the, they shared the exact same DNA. If there is any question for Adam on the position of women and their equality with men, all he has to look at is the fact that she was made from my side. We're the same. Uh, very, very different, but very, very equal. Um, in Genesis 2, 8, 18 is when God looked at everything. After creation, the Bible says that God went down the line and he looked at everything he made and he went, that's good and that's good and that's good and that's good. The first thing that the Bible says that God noticed that wasn't good was when he saw Adam by himself. And he said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then God created Eve. And let me just do it a quick time out there because that's one of the most misinterpreted verses in the Bible. When it says that God made Eve to be Adam's helper, Okay, um, that does not mean to be in a subservient role or to simply serve Adam in whatever he wants her to do. Because the word that's, that's translated, the Hebrew word that's translated helper there is the exact same word that's translated throughout the Old Testament that, to refer most often to God himself. And so certainly when God calls him, himself our helper, he's not putting himself in a subservient role to us. It's talking about relationship and partnership. And so God creates the two of them um, and so you see, and this is all happening before the fall. So, and then it says that God gives Adam work to do. Um, and even before Eve was created, God told Adam to tend the garden. Now, why did he do that? I love this story because I think about that and go, why did, so God creates Adam. He creates the beautiful garden, all of creation. Everything is perfect. Um, and he says to Adam, I want you to tend the garden. Again, why did God do that? Was God, did God go, Phew, finally, somebody to help me tend the stinking garden. I feel like I've been doing this for all of eternity by myself, you know. God didn't have Adam tend the garden because God was somehow better off. 
that God could rest now that Adam was working. Okay, so there's three things involved or three parts of this equation. There's God, the garden, and Adam. Okay, before Adam, God tended the garden by himself, right? So then Adam comes along. So one of those three has to benefit from this new arrangement. Is God better off because Adam's tending the garden? Take a wild guess. Group participation. Is God better off? No. Is the garden better off? Is the garden thinking if the, if the garden could think? Or does God go, oh, wow, it's so much better now that Adam's taking care of it? Because <clears throat> I've seen men tend gardens. So that's a whole other deal. Okay. Is the garden better off? Take a wild guess. No. Ooh, that only leaves one left. The only one that could possibly benefit from this arrangement was Adam. There's something about the way God made Adam that he more fully comes alive, he more fully experiences life the way God created him to experience when he's working. And keep in mind, this is before the fall. And we have translated that, and we'll talk a lot more about that tomorrow morning, but we have, we, we have often missed that mark and thought that work is somehow a necessary evil. Because most people, if they win the lottery, the first thing they do is quit their job. In other words, we have this thought, if I didn't have to work, I wouldn't. And that is such a misconception about how God made us. Because especially us men, there's something about the way that we're uniquely wired that we come more fully alive when we're working and we're productive and doing what God has called us to do. Okay, so we were created to be if you look at the garden before the fall, we were created to be in relationships. We were created to work. Um, we were created to rule God's creation together. God, after God made Eve, he said, let them rule. So we were created to rule God's creation together, side by side, man and woman, not rule one over the other, but to rule creation together and to experience intimacy, to experience intimacy with God and to experience intimacy uh, with each other. And uh, we'll talk more about that again tomorrow night when we talk about the, this unique relationship that man and woman, woman have and how that's a reflection of God and the intimacy. So the Bible uses one word to describe life before the fall, and the word is paradise. Now, when I say picture, everybody close your eyes, you don't need to close, but if I said close your eyes and picture paradise, what's your picture? Most people, how many of you, your picture had something to do with a beach and a chair and a palm tree and a cool beverage of choice in your hand, okay? And some of you that are married, just a little conviction here, some of you that are married only pictured one chair on the beach, okay? <laughs> we, we won't get into that now, but you might want to wrestle with that picture, okay? Because see, we which is really interesting because that means we have a distorted picture of paradise. There's only two times, only two things in the Bible that, that are ever described as paradise. One is life before the fall in the garden, and the second is heaven. And both are life the way God intended it to be. And yet what's interesting is the two things that existed in paradise are relationships and work. And yet when you have your fantasy picture of paradise, usually those are the two things that are noticeably absent. We think of a life without work and maybe a life without relationships, at least for the week that we're 
in paradise, right? <clears throat> and then the Bible makes one amazing statement. There's really only one descriptive word that's used to describe paradise in the Bible before the fall, and it's in Genesis 2.25, and it says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I thought about that. Of all the words you could use to describe paradise, the one thing that, the one description that comes out in the Bible is no shame. Why would God choose that one? Because I think there's nothing that debilitates us more and keeps us from being the people that God wants us to be more than the shame that you and I carry around in our lives. From our past, from stuff now. Um, and so the Bible describes paradise as a place of work, a place of relationships, and a place with no shame. And that's just kind of intriguing to me. And so now let's talk about the fall and what happened. How did that all get messed up? And it's a familiar story, but, but I want to maybe point out some stuff that you hadn't looked at or looked at that way before. The first thing you need to notice is that it all has to do with that tree, right? That bad, bad tree in the middle of the garden. The first thing you need to notice is the instructions about that tree were given to Adam which is really inefficient. I think God made some major mistakes here, but that's just me personally. Okay. <clears throat> it says, The Lord God took the man, and this is before Eve was even created. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay? Well, why did, why did God... He, I mean, he's... Um, omniscient, right? He knew he was going to create Eve. So why didn't he wait and sit them both down at the same time? He gave the instructions to Adam, knowing he was going to create Eve. Why did he do that? It was a call for Adam to lead. It was a call for Adam. God was giving Adam those instructions specifically so that he would lead his wife and, and lead his family in this area and be the protector of his family to keep them away from this tree and what they needed. Now, here's the question. The question is, why is the tree there? How did the tree get there? Did God wake up one day? Of course, God doesn't sleep. Did God look down in the garden one day and go, what? Hey, where did that tree come from? Who, who put that tree here? Anybody? Anybody? You know, Okay, just a wild guess. God created everything, okay? So who created the tree? Wow, you guys are good. God created the tree. So he says to Adam, you can eat from any tree in the garden. Now, when, when the Bible talks about the garden here, it's not talking about it, you know, a garden that's like you know, a little plot of land about a third of this room. It says that the garden had the headwaters of four rivers flowing through it. So like think a county or, or maybe bigger, okay? But Adam's the only person on the entire stinking planet, right? So, so, and everything else is perfect too. So even outside the garden, things are pretty nice, right? And so Adam's got basically the entire planet. And God says, you can have anything. Just stay away from that one tree. Well, don't you think it'd be wise for Adam to say, we're moving to Cleveland, okay? We're going to get away <laughs> from the tree. But no, that, so why is that tree there? Here's why the tree is there. It represents choice. It represents the choice that Adam had to make. Because here's the deal. God created Adam to be what? In relationship with him. But God knew it wouldn't be a relationship unless Adam had the, the choice 
to say no. Because no relationship is a real relationship unless you have the option to say no. Karen and I have been married for 29 years. When I proposed to her, I could have put a gun to her head, I guess, and said, will you marry me? And she probably would have said, okay. And if I kept the gun there, I might have got her to say the vows and, and we would legally be married. But would it be a relationship? Would it be a marriage? No. The only thing that made her yes significant is the fact that she had the option to say no. And God knew it was the same with you and I. So the answer to the question, why, is it, why didn't God just make everything perfect? Why didn't God make everybody to be in a relationship with him? It's because God so longs to be in a real relationship with you that he knows that the one thing he had to give you for that to work is to give you the option to say no. And that's what the tree is. And that's Adam's option to say no. God says, here's the deal. You can have anything in the garden, but stay away from that tree. And so Adam has, that tree represents, am I going to choose to do life the way God wants me to do it? Or am I going to kind of go my own way? And so what's really interesting to me is when it, the size of the garden is that Adam kind of focuses on the tree. He just stands around and goes, wow. That's the, that's the one we're not supposed to eat from, you know. He just kind of stays there and going, this one here, ooh, it looks kind of good. And, and he kind of becomes focused on what he can't have rather than all that God has offered him. Okay, so then, then Eve comes along, we know that story, and then the, uh, Satan, God's enemy, kind of manifests himself in the, in, the, in the form of a serpent and comes in the garden and has that famous dialogue with Eve, even the apple or fruit, whatever it was, and, um, and has that with Eve. And it says that the woman, and basically he tempts Eve by saying, you know, which is basically the same temptation that he gives you and I. You've heard all your life that God's got the best for you. It's not true. You can have more life than even what God's offered you if you go outside of what God is telling you to do. You go do it your own way. It'll be better. That was what he tempted Eve with, and that's what he tempts you and I with. So it says, finally, Eve is, saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and she ate it, okay? And that's the fall. And that's when everything changed. And so write this down. It was all Eve's fault, okay? Women blew it for men right there. No, wait a minute. Was it Eve's fault? Because Eve's kind of gotten the bad rap the whole time. But you probably know that, that that's only the first half of the sentence. The, sentence, the, the Genesis 3, 6 has a comma. And it says, she also gave some to her husband who was with her. <laughs> and he ate it. He's standing right there. Okay, So this entire dialogue that Eve has with the serpent about the tree, and she's saying, no, God says we shouldn't do it, and the, and the serpent says, no, you'll be fine, you'll actually, your eyes will be open, you'll be like God, you'll actually get more out of life if you do it your way and not God's way, and, he, and she says, no, we shouldn't do that, and, fin and so she, finally she takes some and she eats it, and it says that Adam is standing, it says, and she gave some to her husband here, Adam, and he's standing right there, just kind of passively standing there. With his hands in his pockets. Well, no, he, didn't. he was naked, so he wouldn't have had hands in his pockets. I don't know what he was doing with his hands. <clears throat> but, but he stands by passively, okay? So, but who had God given the instructions to? Adam. 
So Adam, if sin is defined as us doing things our way and not what God wants us to do, doing things that are not what God wants us or not doing things that God wants us to do, if that's what sin is, then who was the first one to sin? God said to Adam, you protect your wife, you protect your family, you make sure nobody eats from this tree. And then during that whole dialogue with the serpent, Adam stands by passively, doesn't say anything. Okay, I believe that Adam's passivity was the first sin. At best, it's a tie. But there is no way when, God, when Adam was given that responsibility and he shirks the responsibility and stands by passively that Eve can be held as the most responsible. Okay? Um, and by the way, ever since the fall that has started a pattern for us men where we have this proclivity towards passivity. One of our greatest weaknesses is that we're, when we're called to stand up and to lead and to be men, we often stand by passively. And we're going to talk more about that this weekend because that's a big deal for me. Why is it? And I'm a, I'm a pretty strong leader, and I, I find myself in a lot of leadership situations. But why is it when I'm sitting at home and I, and I hear the boys fighting in the other room, my first thought is, I hope Karen deals with this so I don't have to. It goes all the way back to the garden because there is this drift that we have towards passivity. Um, and then they have this amazing dialogue with God following that. Uh, and I want to hit on just a couple things and for the remainder, and then we'll be done. Um, it says, then the, this is immediately following the fall. The very next thing it says, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made covering for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. There's this picture that you have that they had this morning time with God every day where he would just walk relationally with them through the garden. And it said they heard him coming, and so they hid among the trees of the garden. So kind of the first thing that happened was they got stupid um, because they decided to hide from God. Adam goes, quick, hide behind the trees. Um, but, the, but the Lord God called out to them, where are you? So he says, Adam, where are you? Which Now, did God have a momentary lapse of his you know, <laughs> omniscience? Well, no. God walks into the garden, and Adam and Eve quick hide. So what's interesting is that the first thing that enters the picture after the fall is shame. The last thing the Bible tells us about life without sin was no shame. The first thing that enters the picture is shame. Adam feels shame and he hides from God. And God says, Adam, where are you? Did God not know where he was? Well, of course not. Which says something. I mean, God, he could, God could have come in and gone, ah, Adam, duh, third tree on the left, come on up. Um, here's what that says to me. God let Adam hide. Because he comes in and goes, Adam, where are you? God will let us hide. God lets you hide if you choose to. He honors your hiding. Um, but then he comes in and says, Adam, where are you? And Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. The other reason that God um, offers, that God calls out to Adam, where are you, is God is offering Adam a second chance. Because God had every right at that point to kill, to just to put him to death immediately, because he said that. Anybody who touches it will die, right? So he, he could have come in and just said, Adam, you ate the fruit, boom, you're gone. 
Okay? And he would, have, he would have been absolutely justified to do that. But he doesn't. He comes in and gives him. He's a God of second chances. But here's what's interesting. He calls out to Adam, and he doesn't call him out and say, Adam, you blew it. He says, Adam, where are you? What God is doing is God's giving Adam an opportunity. He's giving Adam the opportunity to step up and say, you know what, God? You're right. I blew it. I am so sorry. I know that what I deserve is to die, but if there is any way that you could see in your heart to forgive me for this, God, I will do whatever you need me to do. I am so, so sorry. He gives Adam the opportunity to stand up and do that. But what does Adam do? Adam says, I heard you in the garden and I was naked because I was afraid, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat from? Again, God kind of is playing with him and giving him more opportunities. Did God not know the story, what happened? Is God going, wait a minute, what happened at the tree? Obviously, God knows the whole thing. Did you eat from the tree and that I command you not to eat from? And now Adam finally steps up and says, you're right. He says, the woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit for the tree and I ate it. So the first thing that happens is shame. The second thing is blame. And Adam blames the woman. But here's what's interesting. He not only blames the woman, he kind of blames God too. The woman that you, wait a minute, the woman that you put here, she wasn't my idea. I didn't ask for it. I'd never seen a woman before. I didn't even know what a woman was. And you decided I needed one. I don't think I need one. You put her here. She gave it to me. It's her fault. It's kind of your fault. Okay? So Adam becomes passive, filled with shame, and begins to blame. At that point, God just begins to ignore Adam, because that conversation's going nowhere. So he says, to, he says he turns to the woman and says, what is this that you have done? And the, serp, the woman says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so this pattern of passing the blame down the line that began with Adam and Eve continues with you and I uh, today. And so let's talk about what are the implications for us, what are the consequences, um, because I think you'll see how this isn't just a, an interesting story from the Bible, it, it still is impacting you and I today. Um, and so uh, we, live with the, we live with the brokenness of life not being the way it was intended to be in paradise, and we notice this especially true in our relationships, that our relationship with God is broken, our relationship with each other is, uh, has all kinds of brokenness in it. Um, and in that, what's really interesting to me, uh, there are different consequences of the fall for men and women. I don't know if you ever noticed that before. The Bible points out different. God has a different conversation with Adam and Eve following the fall on what they can expect life to be like. Okay? Um, what we find is that the conversation that he has with, with Eve is what most women experience today. The conversation he has with Adam is what's true for most of us men. But this conversation where God talks, that sometimes is referred to as the curse. You know, like I think we get this idea that God's angry at them, and so he's inflicting punishment on them for being bad, 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 bad people. That's not the tone here in Hebrew. When, when God is talking, and God has this conversation with them. It's, it's the tone of a loving father. You know, when, when Grayson was about six years old, we go on vacation with my family every year to Arkansas, and one year he was in the boat, and uh, it, was, it was young that he still had to be wearing a life jacket, and he wanted to go swimming, but he had his, he had a really, he had his favorite T-shirt on underneath his life jacket. So we made him take his life jacket off, take the T-shirt off so that he could get in the water and go swimming. So he takes, takes his T-shirt off, and he did what he always does at, at 
with his clothing, he throws it straight up in the air, right? And, and usually at home, it just gets caught on a ceiling fan or something. But when you're out in the lake in the middle, of the, a gust of wind catches it and it falls in the water. And, and he, he's like, Dad, my shirt, my shirt. So we drive the boat over there and, um, and he's frantic because this is his favorite t-shirt. And the t-shirt just starts sinking in the water. And we're watching it go down. Do you remember that scene from Titanic where the guy dies at the end of the movie and his body just goes? It's, it's like that with the T-shirt. And, and he's like, my shirt, Dad, go get, it, go get it. Well, you need to know that the water right here is 75 feet deep. I, I'm not going after the shirt. And so he was, he was kind of upset and beside himself. So I sat him down and had this conversation with him. It kind of went like this. And I said, you know, I know that was your favorite T-shirt. And, and to be honest, it was one of my favorite shirts of yours, too. But you just need to know that because of what you've done today, you will never have that T-shirt again. You will now, in essence, do life without that T-shirt. That's the consequence of what you've done. That's the tone of the conversation that God has with Adam and Eve, of a loving father. And so he says, the first thing he talks to is Eve. He says, um, will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Okay? And, and a lot of times, we, you know, we have assumed that this means, this is labor pain and menstruation. Okay? That that's the curse. In fact, my grandmother's generation used to refer to a woman's period as the curse. And it refers to this passage where uh, that's inflicted on Eve because of the fall. Well, that's a part of it, but it certainly isn't the full effect of the consequence of the fall, or women could be out from underneath any consequence of the fall by simply going through uh, men uh, menopause or having a hysterectomy. So obviously there's more to it, and it's this, that God has, has wired women to give themselves to relationships. Women are wired relationally to birth relationships, to give themselves to relationships. And that becomes a critical thing in a woman's life, in their marriage, in their uh, parenting. And here's what God says. In your relationships, you will now experience great pain. Relationships will be painful for you. And what we know is that women experience more relational pain often than men do. And then he says... Um, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Again, a misinterpreted verse. This is not God's design that men would rule over their wives. This is God saying, this is not how I intended it to be, but you need to know this is what life will probably end up being like because of the brokenness in your lives now. Instead of this, of having co-dominion over creation, instead of ruling creation together, you will now attempt to rule one over the other. And he says to his wife, you will have, to the woman, he says, you will have a desire for your husband. And, and women think, yeah, see, we've got, we've got this desire for our husband. It's a wonderful thing. That's not what the word means here, okay? The same word that's translated for desire in Genesis 3 is the same word that's translated in Genesis 4 when it says that Satan desired Cain's heart that he might kill his brother Abel, okay? It's a, it's a consuming desire. It's a desire to, to control and to overwhelm and to consume. And so what God says is to, the, to women, and this is true in, in marriages, is you will have an insatiable appetite for more relationship with your husband. And it's, it's, it has as much to do, it doesn't mean that God doesn't call us to be the best husbands that we can be. But here's what it says. If I was, and I'm not, but if I was the best husband on the planet, it still wouldn't be enough for Karen. There would be something in her that would long for more relationship with me. There would be something in her that wishes she had more. And 
And that's not just a function of whether I'm a good husband or not. There's something that happened in the fall that put this hole in women's heart with this desire for their husband, this insatiable appetite for their husband that he cannot fill. It's just not possible. And yet in her mind, it feels like it's something that he's not doing and should be doing more of. And so that's the women, God has designed women to birth relationships, including a marriage and God says, in that, you will experience great pain. Now, it's interesting. He doesn't have that same conversation with Adam. It doesn't mean that Adam doesn't experience those same things. But he has a different conversation with Adam. And here's the conversation with Adam. He said, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. So Adam is cast out of the garden where everything in the garden was plush and lush and uh, easy to tend and fruitful, God now sends Adam out of the garden. And whereas to the woman, he says, you will experience great pain in your relationships. To Adam, he says, you will experience great pain in your work. And he sends him out to work the harsh ground outside of the garden where there's thorns and thistles and work is difficult and it's exhausting and he gets done, and, and there's this great word in this that actually has been a great word for Karen and I to incorporate into our marriage. It's, it's the word when it says toiling. You will toil. And toiling is a word that I think really describes what a lot of men experience in our, in our lives, in our day, and in our career, where, we, where we, even though we're doing stuff and we're busy, we have this feeling, did what I do today really amount for anything? Does this matter? And toiling is the feeling of, I'm working hard, but does it matter? And so Adam goes out and has to work in a way that is constant toiling. And there are days that I come home from work, and Karen says, how was your day? And I say, you know, I feel like today I was just toiling. And even though I love my job, there, she gets that. Because she understands that that's a, that's a big deal for men that we can feel like sometimes we're just spinning our wheels and toiling, and does what I'm doing really matter for anything? And so Adam goes out, and now work becomes difficult. So these two things that existed before the fall, relationships and work, are the two things that got messed up in the fall. But women experience more of the pain on the relational side. Men experience more of the pain on the work side. Again, doesn't mean that we don't all experience a combination of both, but men will often experience more anxiety, more stress, more pain around their career and their work and productivity than they do around their relationship. So, put those two together, and what do you have? Adam, who gets up, goes out, works hard, gets cut up in the fields and he's toiling and it's hard work and he comes home and he is exhausted because now work is laborious and draining. And he comes home, but he's been expelled from the garden, right? So he comes home to what? He comes home to what he's hoping is the garden. He comes home to what he's hoping is just some peace and quiet where, where everything is nice and kids treat everybody nice and nobody asks too much, where I can just come back to the garden and maybe, maybe have my wounds tended to a little bit and I can just relax and, because I know that he knows that the next day he's going to get up and he's going to have to go back out there and the thorns and the thistles will be back and he will start that process all over again. That's Adam's world. But what does he come home to? A wife who what? 
who longs for more relationship. And he's coming home to this constant demand. And, and so these, this man and this woman, Adam and Eve, who now look at marriage and life from two very different perspectives and not understanding the other, and it creates, I don't know if that looks like that was a little glimpse into your life, but that sounds really familiar to me. And, um, and what I want to do is, is just kind of leave it there and give us an opportunity to, uh, in our small groups to get to know each other a little bit, but to begin processing. How is that true for you? What about that story is, have you never thought of in that way before? But how are those things that we talked about with the fall and the pain and the relational pain and the work pain, how does that ring true for you? Um, because this will, we'll come back to this and this will continue through most of what we're going to cover uh, over the next four days. So let me pray, and then Pete, why don't you come back up and send us out. God, thanks for the opportunity to be here and to be together. Um, we're all grateful, God, and I'm very grateful that that day when Adam and Eve sinned for the very first time, you didn't exercise your prerogatives of just wiping them off the face of the planet, but you became a God of second chances, so much so that you even said that you were going to bring about still the entire human race through them. They still were your plan. And God, thanks that you do that with us each and every day. I pray that you would help us to see how this stuff impacts us and how our own brokenness um, impacts our work and our relationships and the world around us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Pete.